0: I'm going to be talking about the Film Language Glossary, which is a project that began uh, through an invitation by John Frankfurt and also Nancy Friedland from the uh, media collection at the library. They approached me in the spirit of the fact that we've all noticed over the last number of years here at Columbia that the number of specifically film courses has grown quite a bit, plus the number of professors who simply use film as part of their curricula, whether they teach sociology or politics or history, was also growing. So the need to have perhaps some kind of online resource that would be a glossary of important film uh, information, especially in terms of understanding film style, language, technique, and to provide a, a context for that was something that seemed to us would be very useful. For our own purposes in the School of the Arts, uh, our Introduction to Film class is really the the royal road into the rest of the department. We try and really make it a requirement for any other class within uh, the Film Division. In fact, right now, the Introduction to Film class is being offered, I guess, five times during the course of the year. We have Fall and Spring, there's a Barnard uh, version of it taught actually by our former faculty, so because of that we allow it to be counted, there's a Summer School version and there's a graduate version so we try and really have everyone go through this class and because of that we felt an online resource that could both supplement and in a certain way extend the work that we were doing in our intro lectures in terms of trying to go over film style technique history and things like that again would be very useful for us so that indeed the experience of the class could go on beyond the actual time of it. The overall approach that I think we take in our introduction to film classes is one that tries to look at films as... First, text as actual systems of meaning, creation, and expression. Second, intertext, their relationship to other films or other forms of art. And then finally, within their context, to understand their history and whatever, those kinds of things. This medium was especially important for us at this stage in terms of the first category, textual, to really try and give students as clear and as forthright a number of examples of what we consider the major areas of film style and technique so that as they were looking at films they would have a ready resource to go to to think about different ways that filmmakers have created meaning and expressed uh, different ideas in film. So, in the end, we began. First, I began sort of enumerating what I thought were some of the most basic categories, and then some of my colleagues in the department joined in. Uh, In the end, we now, not at the end, we're still working on it, we have 67 terms that have been defined, and uh, we have illustrated those terms with 83 different clips. Uh, Essentially we start off, uh, in terms of the visual range, with our three principal categories. Cinematography, that is all operations that center on the camera itself. Mise-en-scene, all operations that center on what's in front of the camera. And then editing, that process by which, after filming, different pieces of films are joined together in order to create certain ideas or certain effects. And within each of those, we have several different uh, major areas that can then be subdivided even further. For example, if we were to start off, if we can, with the category of cinematography. Let's see if we can go to cinematography. Okay, You see a basic definition of cinematography where it derives from whatever and gives some of the basic uh, points for it, and then you can see how, within cinematography, several of the categories that you can then learn more about, such as black and white film, camera angle, camera movement, close-ups, color films, etc. Let's move on to camera movement, for example, which is, of course, the physical movement of the camera through space, always a kind of option or choice for directors, and then we have a whole section that deals with camera movement, both historically, giving some sense of the early use of camera movement. For example, we have in very, very early films from 1903, just within the first 10 years of film's development, a short clip from a film made by the cameraman Billy Bitzer. Uh, Maybe we can just watch a little bit of that. This is called Georgetown Loop where Bitzer essentially uh, is on a train with uh, his camera and basically through that uh, just gives you a sense of moving through space. There were an awful lot of early uh, films which made use of this kind of device, mounting the camera on a boat, on a car, on a bicycle, on a train, to give audiences the sensation of moving through space. It's been a lot of work on the derivation of that, so that gives you a sense there. And then, of course, we begin to move to more perhaps which you might think artistically inspired or more deliberate uses of camera movement for example if we move on to F.W. Murnau here uh, from this sequence from The Last Laugh you can see here a kind of extraordinary sequence where the actor Emil Jannings is actually mounted on a platform and the platform is circled so that indeed you get the sensation of the room spinning around him again he's going through a bit of a a drunken reverie at this point. So again, camera movement in those days often Uh, was linked up to those kind of spaces and then we can go on. Let's go all the way down to the bottom if we can because we get finally to some very very recent uses for example this sequence from Martin Scorsese's Goodfellas which is an excellent example of the use of the Steadicam. The Steadicam was a device that, that was first developed in the late 1970s which allowed for camera movement through space but without the shake that was normally associated with handheld cameras it was an extremely smooth almost machine-like even though it's mounted on a physical person and this wonderful sequence if you know the film goodfellas when uh henry our lead character takes the woman who will soon be his wife into the copacabana rather than going in through the front door they decide to go in through the basement in the kitchen where of course henry has a lot of contacts and the camera just follows him for over uh, almost three minutes through this space, through extremely narrow corridors, as you'll see through uh, the preparation tables where a lot of the food is being prepared. Again, Scorsese along with Kubrick and several other directors have really been, were really some of the ones who developed the use of this, not only this technology, but it's very expressive use within American cinema, so there's a good example of that. Uh, So within each of our major categories, they're again subdivided into other kinds of areas, whether it be if we're talking about mise-en-scene, we can talk about architecture, we can talk about many of the different things that are involved with that. Um, For example, if we were to take something like the notion of split screen. Again, sort of perhaps not as familiar a device, but one of our professors oh. did a, a very, very good uh, analysis of that using the film by uh, Abel Gance, the French filmmaker. Actually, if you could go up again, John, just to show. And I think we start off uh, linking the notion of widescreen and split screen to, again, traditions within Western art of within one canvas or within one work, kind of differing frames and the kind of interaction between those images, and then we go on to show a clip from Abel Gantz, a French filmmaker of the 1920s who made one of the very first widescreen films, Napoleon, and you can see here with David McKenna, maybe we can hear the commentary too. Okay, so again, sort of a very, I think, interesting uh, sidebar on that, a kind of, you know, perhaps lesser-known aspect of film history, sort of the beginning of widescreen cinematography. Here, of course, done by having three separate images. When Napoleon was first presented or when it was revived in the early 1980s, you had to have three different projectors at the end because there were three separate images on screen. And sometimes the two side images were different than the one in the center. Or, as you saw in that example, they could sometimes be core so it seemed like there was just one long continuous one. So again, we have at this point about 67 terms that are up and we're trying to add on to that collection all the time. Uh, We eventually also hope to add on different categories involving more perhaps film production and even perhaps maybe some areas on national cinemas to talk about major national cinemas and give examples of key films from some of those cinemas. You can also use this index aside from the way that you can use it with uh, specific terms to just look at the collection of clips which have been digitized at this point and then choose according to whatever clips you might want to do. This, of course, would perhaps open it up to professors who might be using it in a context of, say, showing Italian films or a specific national cinema or cinema representing a particular period of time, the 1930s or the Great Depression or films about the American West or something like that so you can see the entire list here and again just be able to run that particular clip if you like if it's going to again emphasize something that you uh, that you need see I'm trying to see what else to go on in terms of again my teaching and my use of this again it's been i think very very useful within the film division even within the graduate film division we sometimes remarkably get people who have very very little background in actual film studies people who have come to the university or come to our division with extraordinary backgrounds and many other things, but they haven't really studied film or haven't studied it for a long time. So they especially have found this resource really invaluable as a way of refreshing their memory and also teaching them and being able to, within their particular assignments, uh, be much more precise in terms of then only their description of scenes, but the way in which they can then, from their description, begin to understand some of the intentions of the filmmaker and some of the meanings that might accrue from uh, the use of certain techniques. There was an assignment I had in this intro to film class for graduate students I offer on Otto Preminger's Laura, and it was a one that's a film that makes a great deal of very subtle use of mise-en-scene techniques in terms of camera placement and architecture and whatever. And again, I think my students found many of the examples from here extremely compelling for them because they could actually look and see and hear about how we can perhaps look at a scene and the placement of objects or the placement of actors within that scene and then begin to derive a larger sense of what the way and the ways in which meaning has been derived from that particular shot that particular scene so what this has led for in my experience over the last year is for much better detailed much more precise much better informed papers because i think now students have not only Hopefully, the background they get from class and from reading, but a kind of online resource to go to to, in a certain way, give them more and more ways of analyzing films and more and more ways of being able to discuss them. And I think that's, unless John has something okay. to say. Uh, thank you. Richard, All right. okay. Thank you.